Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio Season 2. It is May 5th, 2007. Happy Cinco de Mayo, my friends. This week, our guest is internet conspiracy pundit Kent Daniel Bentkowski of the Controversy Papers. Kent has appeared on numerous esoteric radio programs in the past few months, and I've become quite a fan of his work, so I want to get him on the program to pick his brain a little bit about some of the material that you can find at his fantastic blog that deals in all sorts of conspiracy theories. This interview was a pretty long conversation, about two hours, and in light of some scheduling situations we have here at the BOA headquarters, we've split it up into two parts, and given the content, it actually works out really well, and you'll see why in a couple weeks when the full interview has been posted. This week, we're going to dive into the first installment of the two-hour interview, part one of two. Here's what we're going to be talking about. How Kent Daniel Benkowski got involved in conspiracy theory research in the first place. It's quite an interesting background. He's going to tell us all about it. The origins of the controversy name and why he calls his work research journalism. He's also going to tell us about Hillary Clinton and the 2008 presidential election. His theories on why she's preordained to be president and what that means for the other candidates. We're also going to talk about the microchip agenda and how that leads to the global agenda. We're going to talk about both those big picture conspiracy theories. We're going to discuss false flag terror attacks, what some of the clues are for false flag terror attacks, and why they may be carried out in the first place. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. All of those topics have a myriad of side tangents. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Kent Daniel Benkowski, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Kent Daniel Benkowski is a research journalist from Buffalo, New York. He's been a published author since 1985 when he sold his first article for $20. Since then, he has been writing and working as a journalist and researcher nearly full-time. He also has the ability to see the bigger picture, and as such, he has felt obligated to add his voice to those calling out from within the darkness that surrounds this planet. His website is controversypapers.blogspot.com. K-E-N-T-R-O-V-E-R-S-Y-P-A-P-E-R-S dot blogspot dot com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 16th, 2007. Kent Daniel Bentkowski, part one of two, talking about the controversy papers on Banal of America Audio, season two. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. My guest this week is a very prolific blogger, and he's the man behind controversypapers.net. He has done a tremendous amount of research into all sorts of conspiracies, and, and that's what we're going to be discussing here on the program this week. He's making a lot of waves in the esoteric world. A lot of people are talking about him nowadays. seems like he's really breaking through, and I'm excited to have him here on the program. Kent Daniel Benkowski, the man behind Controversy Papers. Welcome to the program, Kent. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I most especially appreciate the opportunity to speak with your listeners. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm sure they're excited about the episode. Let's just let's just get going here on your bio and your background and how you got interested and, and involved in this conspiracy research. Yeah, um, how I got started in this is uh, I actually have family member uh, – a cousin who married a, a man who's involved uh, in the Illuminati and is 
personally involved with both the Bush crime family and the Rockefellers and the Rothschild uh, family as well. And once I saw that uh, happen, along with my personal experience of working on election uh, campaigns of my then Congressman Jack Kemp, who in 1988 had run for president uh, on the Republican ticket, and um, uh, also uh, who was a former Buffalo Bill quarterback. And it was eye-opening in the respect that when I went in to begin working with um, Congressman Kemp in his re-election campaigns, I thought that the political process was on the up-and-up, and what I learned working on his campaigns was that it was anything but on the up-and-up. And then how did you go from just doing the research and, and being like a personal researcher and, and your own personal journey to the controversypapers.net and being more proactive with your research and making it available for everybody out there on the Internet? This is actually a two-part answer. Uh, first of all, my personal uh, uh, nickname given to me by my best friend is Controversy. And this is because we oftentimes have political discussions that are of a very controversial nature. We talk about all sorts of different um, underlying agendas and themes and conspiracies and so forth. And about eight years ago, we were having one of these discussions at my home, and uh, my best friend Robert had looked up at me and said at one point, oh, you're always trying to start a controversy. I started laughing, and, and I also realized at that point that that was a perfect way to describe me. Um, because everything that I was looking into in terms of research was um, controversial, so to speak. And um, the second part of that question is that uh, about three years ago, I came to the realization that if I remained silent about the things that I had learned since my research began back in 1980, that what would happen is that I would become an accessory after the fact and real crimes that were being committed by the global elite under the, the names of America and the American citizenry. And once I came to that realization, I um, decided to um, put a website together and on uh, June 17, 2005, uh, the Controversy Papers uh, went online at controversypapers.net. And ever since that uh, point, uh, it's been no looking back uh, ever since. Part of what you do at Controversy Papers is what you call research journalism. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the term research journalism is and, um, and, and what you do as a research journalist? Yes, um, research journalism is how I describe what I do. And typically a journalist covers the daily news, uh, things that happened yesterday, things that are happening today, and things that will happen tomorrow. And very often this is uh, matters of 
that won't uh, last long. They will expire pretty quickly. And so what I decided to do is to, instead of being a, a reporter of the daily events, so to speak, that what I would do is focus on research and do longer research-based reports that are of a timeless nature that are going to still be as uh, valuable next year as they were on the day that I published the paper. Yeah. What's your overarching goals here with the controversy papers? Um, as you said, you sort of alluded to that you felt like you needed to do it to clear your conscience in a way or to not be a part of the overall system of criminal activity, if you will. But what's the overall arching goals of the controversy papers outside of that uh, personal thing? Well, there, there are actually two goals. The first is educating the public about some of the deeper issues uh, related to the subjects that I write about. And the second of this uh, is that I hope to at some point foster uh, some sort of change in our world. And as you alluded to also that you that your cousin was married into this Illuminati family and all that all that uh, wild stuff. Talk about your unique relationship to the subjects you research and and this this uh, strange connection you have sort of. Yeah, in 1986, my cousin had married a man who is a part of the Illuminati. They're extremely wealthy. And um, in fact, this gentleman owns a business here in Buffalo that last fiscal year had done $1.5 billion in sales. And they control 22 subsidiaries. This is in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And uh, in terms of this, when I was still in contact with this part of my family, I, were, I was hearing things at that point about um, future plans of who would be president, and um, most especially why uh, Jack Kemp would not be president in 1988. At, at the point he was trying to run for the Republican nomination, I was told in 1988 also that George Bush Jr. would be president one day. This was way before uh, he had done anything in the public eye that was of a national uh, exposure. Um, this was before he was governor of Texas. This was before he had the Texas Rangers uh, baseball team, and it was quite shocking for me to hear this at that point because I still believed that the political process was on the up and up, yeah. and uh, my experience here showed me that it was anything but. And um, have you, since you went online with the controversy papers and, and started um, exposing your research into the Illuminati, have you had any sort of feedback from, from this part of your family that is involved in the Illuminati? You sort of alluded that you aren't involved with them anymore, but, uh, but has there been any reaction at all? Well, actually, Tim, I do not have any contact with this part of my family at this point. Um, but knowing how the Illuminati does operate, um, I am quite sure that they are aware of this. 
Um, mm-hmm. Although personally, I've not received any feedback uh, regarding this. Uh, no phone calls, no visits, no lawsuits or anything like that. Like you said, uh, you've been doing this research for 27 years, a very long time. Before we dive into the controversy papers, let's let's talk about some of your influences and the people who have guided your research over the years. The people that have had the biggest impact on my personal research and also on my life in general are obviously truth tellers. And this is something, uh, truth and honesty is something that's extremely important to me. In fact, one of the early controversy papers that I did publish was uh, a paper related to my moral code. And it explained exactly what I believe uh, in terms of that moral code. Mm -hmm. And um, the people that have had the biggest influence on me are people like David Icke, who has put forth some incredibly accurate information uh, for the most part. And information that I was able to fact check and, and confirm was accurate. Um, at this point in time, I'm very influenced and very interested in the work of Michael Tassarian. Um, he is an individual that I have interviewed personally and had recently put that interview up on the controversy papers. Um, Michael is a very fascinating uh, individual and very captivating to talk to. And um, his book on Atlantis is incredibly interesting. And he also, last year, put out a 22-DVD box set. Oh, wow. um, Which covers six different subject matters. And um, this, as well, is just fascinating information. Now, let's dive into uh, some of these controversy special reports that can be found at controversypapers.net. And this is a lot there, and before we did the interview, before, as I was preparing for the interview, I sort of cherry-picked the ones that I wanted to talk about, and, and the audience should know that there's just tons more on there that, that are worthy of inspection and investigation by the listeners. But these are sort of the ones that I picked to talk about. And uh, the first one I want to talk to you about is Hillary Clinton's Hidden Agenda of Manipulation which is about the Hillary Clinton 2008 presidential run. First, uh, talk a little bit about what gravitated you towards um, choosing this as a topic. Okay. Um, Yeah, when I saw the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal happen, I realized, based on the research that I had done up to that point, that there was a big possibility that there was an underlying agenda uh, to that uh, situation. Uh, because it accomplished two different things. It denigrated the office of president in the eyes and the minds of the American public. And also what it did is it propped up Hillary Clinton and her image in terms of a quote-unquote wife who would tolerate almost anything and who would persevere under incredible odds. Mm -hmm. And... um, So when that happened, I realized that there was a very big potential uh, for something big to be in Hillary's future. And I'm talking something bigger than just her becoming a senator of New York State, where I live here. 
Um, so what happened at that point is uh, going back to just after 9-11, I started putting together a dossier on Hillary Clinton, and I was focusing on news articles and other bits of information that were related to her presidential potential, so to speak. And um, so what I did is in um, 2002, for instance, there is a screenshot in this report, Hillary Clinton's Hidden Agenda of Manipulation, uh, a screenshot of a message board posting that I had done in September of 2002 where I actually described Hillary Clinton as the future first woman president of the USA. This was way before she was even talking about running. This was at a point in time where she was interested in New York State senatorial matters. And this was a representation of how I was able to see things in a bigger picture context. Mm -hmm. So once I saw her announcement in January of this year that she was going to be running and holding all these different televised town hall meetings and so forth, that she was going to be uh, manipulated, if you will, uh, simply because in my area here, she's completely hated by almost everybody. And I've talked to many people across the country where I've found this to be true across the board. So the only way that she could get elected being so unlikable is for the situation to be manipulated. And lo and behold, in, on January 27th, 2007, there was a televised C-SPAN town hall meeting in Des Moines, Iowa, where they used this technique called the Delphi technique, which is a way of manipulating an audience to arrive at a predetermined, uh, uh, like a predetermined, uh, uh, Mindset? Mindset, I guess you could say. Thank you. And um, this is where the participants in the audience are handpicked. The uh, questions that are asked of the candidate are handpicked. And in terms of that, uh, watching this on C-SPAN and then later going through the transcript, uh, this is exactly what they did is they completely manipulated this. Uh, she did not receive any negative questions whatsoever, which is what I suspected would happen anyway. And now to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit, and um, and also because I'm just generally cynical, wouldn't this manipulation of uh, the town hall meetings be practiced by all candidates? I would presume that that sort of funny business is, is uh, part and parcel with the political process. Are you saying that it's more with, with Hillary Clinton or that she's the only one doing it or just that uh, maybe she's the best at it? In this current election cycle, um, I see this as being uh, very necessary uh, for her to end up in the White House. Um, earlier this uh, in uh, 
2006, in the summer of 2006, uh, Hillary Clinton was the guest of honor at that year's Bilderberg Group conference. This is the same treatment that her husband received in the year before he announced his presidential run, where he served two terms, just like I believe she will. And um, this is something that all candidates do, but you have to understand that going from George Washington, our very first president, all the way forward to George Bush Jr., the 43rd president, we have had this uh, situation where the winner in every single election, with no exceptions whatsoever, is the individual with the closest ties to royalty. So these candidates who end up becoming president are people who are selected, not elected. And so do you think that these other candidates that we're hearing a lot about now, do you think all these other people are just sort of the noise and uh, the distraction and everything else, and that it's already, the game's already over, that Hillary's definitely going to be president? Yeah, my personal belief on this is that this is all designed to back up this assertion when we were children that we were told in school anybody could become president. And as I had just mentioned, according to a, a genealogy uh, group called Burke's Peerage, um, every president that has ever been in this country is the individual with the most ties to royalty during that particular election. So these other candidates, such as Giuliani or uh, McCain or Obama, these people are put into the process to make it look legitimate when it actually is anything but. Do these candidates know that the, the jig is up before they even get involved in the race, or are they actually under the impression that they have a shot? Or does it depend on how uh, how deep they are into into the uh, the pyramid of power, if you will? I believe that it is the, the last uh, thing that you had said. Mm -hmm. um, not every single individual is going to be part of the in, inner circle, so to speak, um, so that there are individuals who are running who may not realize that this is underlying everything. In terms of people like um, Giuliani, for example, um, he absolutely is part of that inner crowd. Um, a person like Obama, I personally believe, is put into the process to give credence to the idea that an African-American could become president someday. Um, when you look at the mindset of these global elite members, and you find that they're incredibly racist in their beliefs. Um, and so I can't see that there would be, for instance, an African-American president before there was a woman president. In addition, Tim, there have been a lot of uh, television shows recently um, that have shown a woman as president. Um, for example, uh, currently in the Fox TV series Prison Break, 
there is a woman president who is very Hillary Clinton-esque in the series. So this is a part of the subliminal um, uh, manipulation, uh, the subliminal implanting and embedding of this idea into the viewers so that it is an acceptable thing when once they go into that voting booth. If they even need to vote, given the uh, technology nowadays with electronic voting. Yes, that's <laughs> correct. Before we move on to the next uh, controversy paper that I wanted to discuss, you also allude in, in this Hillary Clinton piece, you also um, allude to a grooming process that's underway right now for uh, George Bush's nephew. Um, you'd know his name better than I would now. It's, it's, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it, but he's being groomed to be the first Hispanic president uh, of the United States or something like that you talk about in, um, in this Hillary Clinton piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? You'll be way ahead of the curve uh, if it all goes down that way. Yeah. Um, well, who we're talking about here is George P. Bush. This is uh, Jeb's uh, Hispanic son uh, because he married a Hispanic woman. And um, what they're doing with this individual is they're, as you had just mentioned, there is a grooming process that's going on where he has a very negative past, this young man. Uh, he's been arrested for many things that he had done while in college, uh, which involve drinking and partying and abuse of women and so forth. Uh, so they're going to have to sanitize his uh, biography to remove all of that negativity. And in addition to that, this grooming process is done through the media. Yeah. Uh, where they are presented as uh, being, you know, future leaders and so forth. Now, the interesting thing about this is that if we go back all the way to 1980, when George Herbert Walker Bush uh, Sr. was uh, the vice president, and we go all the way forward to Hillary uh, being elected president, we see that the same crowd of either Clintons or Bushes who have recently come out in the media again as being buddy-buddy and close, uh, closely tied to one another, um, we're going to find that that same crowd has controlled things for, at a minimum, 36 consecutive years in the White House. Yeah. Um, it's kind of scary when you think about it that way. Yeah, and and I'm a, I'm assuming uh, in making that statement that during the Reagan years, the person who was really running the presidency was Bush uh, Senior, and not Ronald Reagan. It does appear that that was uh, the actual case that he was running things, and uh, because. Uh, Reagan supposedly was showing the first signs of Alzheimer's during his uh, first term, mm -hmm. as they say. Okay, let's move to the next controversy special report that I wanted to discuss, and um, and, and this one is on the microchip agenda, one uh, that I find particularly fascinating because it seems like something you can definitely see uh, coming down the pike. For starters, let's talk about what made you decide to tackle the microchip issue. 
what happened, Tim, is that my 11-year-old uh, dog died in the, the summer of 2006. And what happened is, after my dog Bear had passed away, mm -hmm. my wife and myself and our son went down to the local ASPCA and um, uh, adopted a, a second dog. And we were given a brochure which was talking about uh, microchipping your pet. And this uh, particular brochure had this quote inside of it. It said, quote, if you are worried about loss or theft, you need more than just a name tag to identify your dog. Stop at your veterinarian on the way home from pick, picking up your puppy and set your mind at ease with permanent identification like a microchip. You can also take this opportunity to obtain a general health review and set future appointments for immunization which we will also discuss later in the brochure. If microchip service is available in your area, your puppy will be assigned an exclusive registration number and will be entered into a national registry. If he or she turns up at any shelter or vet, a quick scan will reveal the registry information and you will be called. When I read that paragraph, it chilled my blood. And I realized that at that moment, upon reading those very words, that this was a part of an agenda, which actually is a five-point agenda, which ends up with every human being on this planet Microchip, and you talk about that agenda in in, in obviously in this <laughs> since it's titled the microchip agenda. You you do talk about the agenda and um you sort of uh, uh what you call gradualism, and and what you're sort of talking about. Let me hit the uh the sort of the the pathway towards everybody being chipped, and then you can talk about it a little more. Uh, it's first the animals, then the criminals, then invalids, then children, and then everybody. Is that pretty much uh hit it? Yes, that's that's correct. Uh, why don't you flesh that out for the audience and, and tell them more about this gradualism that, that's coming down the pike for the microchips? Everything that the global elite does has to be done in a gradual, step-by-step -step process. Um, and this is because many people would object to an announcement that would say, uh, within two years, everybody on this planet is going to be microchipped. There would be uh, many, many people who would be very upset at yeah. such a thing. So what they need to do is they need to go from, for instance, in, in this particular situation, they actually began with farm animals. Now, farm animals used to be branded with a hot iron, and they'd be branded with the, the insignia of the farm to which they belonged. And that did not prevent people from stealing uh, animals uh, at various farms across the country. Mm -hmm. 
Um, this is well known and especially well known to those of us who were uh, farmers. Uh, Tim, for instance, I grew up on a farm, so I, I was well aware of this. Then it goes from the farm animals to the pets. Now, we're, uh, very many people are um, very upset if they lose their animal, and in terms of me personally, um, my dog Bear was a complete family member. Um, he was very well-loved and very admired by many of our family and friends for being such a wonderful uh, being, and it upset me greatly when he passed. So they go from the pets, then they go to the criminals, because everyone in the population is not necessarily going to be too upset by criminals being microchipped. Yeah. Um, they always start with the most detested individual or type of individual to gain the public's acceptance of these matters. So then they go from the criminals, and this is for both probation and parole that this will be used. Uh, so then they go to the, as you said, the invalids, and as I describe them, the Alzheimer's patients and the mentally impaired, uh, because those people can oftentimes wander away and could fall into uh, some serious harm if they weren't paying attention to where they were going. Mm -hmm. So obviously we need to protect them. Now there's been such a, an issue with these quote-unquote missing children, so to speak, children who get kidnapped or who are uh, needing protection in some way. So we accept that this, as it had already been done for the farm animals, the pets, the criminals, and the invalids. Now we need to protect our children, and it's very important if um, they were uh, kidnapped, for example, that we would be able to get them back. Yeah. And then we go from the children to the complete adult population of the country. By that point, there is so many of the previous uh, groups have been accepted in the minds of the population that it's not too much of a jump to go from the children to the total adult population. If we went from the pets directly to everyone, that would not be acceptable. Yeah. But this gradualism path is acceptable. And that's why they do it. Mm -hmm. And where do you think we are on this scale of uh, gradualism? And, and it, uh, I know you're not like a like a psychic or anything, <laughs> but um, where, when when do you think this whole thing is going to become um, so commonplace that people are just going to be chipped and it's, it's not going to be a big deal? Where are we on on that scale? Well, actually, where we are now is in the past year or so, they have made the announcements about the criminals and the, and the uh, impaired, uh, the invalids. And they are beginning to make 
the announcements and, and laying the groundwork, if you will, for the children. Yeah. Now, what they're doing with the adults, and this is very interesting, and people should pay attention to this with what I'm going to say next. Uh, keep this in mind as you hear this as we go forward. Um, how they're targeting the adult acceptance of this agenda is they're making it a fad for people to be microchipped. You can get into the club, um, you know, the, your favorite nightclub mm-hmm. if you have a microchip. You can get it not only into your favorite nightclub, but you can go into the VIP area if you are microchipped. And this had been an announcement made in uh, an Italian uh, nightclub where they were doing this in Europe. So we're probably about, I would say, 90% of the way there. Oh, boy. Um, they want this to be taken care of before 2012 or thereabouts, um, and it's just a matter of how much resistance and how much protesting there's going to be uh, along these lines. Um, just the other day, for instance, the uh, chief executive officer of the Visa uh, credit card company had said that we will most likely have a cashless society by the end of 2012. Oh, wow. So this is going to be um, the general time time frame, I believe. And you can kind of see this uh, this microchip thing unfolding in in the uh, uh, the proliferation of cell phones in the last uh, five years. You can kind of see how overnight uh, technology can can infiltrate every aspect of someone's life. Yes, that's correct, and and we must remind people that uh, brand new cell phones, every one of them has GPS uh, coordination ability built within it so we can be traced and tracked uh, no matter where we are at. They can find out our location just based on that cell phone. And it doesn't even have to be on a certain phone call for this to be tracked. Uh, in fact, uh, it can be tracked with the phone being turned off. Obviously, there are a lot of technophiles out there that, that probably think this might be a good idea. And, of course, uh, as you said, they're going to frame these different initiatives to get, you know, invalids and criminals and children chipped. For They're going to couch these in good reasons why. But why don't you tell us why the microchip is a bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea because... One of the things that the, the, the companies that are making these chips, they are saying things like only the positive aspects of this, mm-hmm. um, which, as I just explained, are the ability to find your pet if you lose it or the ability to get your child back if they are kidnapped. And in the case of of this uh, situation, um it's a bad idea because, for starters, these microchips have both transmitting and receiving capabilities, and they have the ability to alter your state of mind, 
They have the ability to alter your brain waves and other aspects of your homeostasis, which is the word that describes the overall body's uh, uh, systems. Mm-hmm. And um, in doing that, um, putting that chip into your arm, uh, what's going to happen is you will not in any way, shape, or form be able to get out of that uh, tracking system because uh, it will always be turned on. And this has also some danger for dissidents uh, like myself who they will target uh, to alter the thought process of people like myself and you too, Tim. Oh, no. Well, I'm not going to be chipped, so. Well, I'm not going to either. <laughs> we'll um, be living out in the boondock somewhere. Uh, yeah, you and I will food. probably be sharing a, uh, a cabin in the woods somewhere. I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> um, let's let's go. Let's tackle another uh, one of your controversy special reports. There's a four-part piece, and it's uh, really fascinating and well done. And that's anatomy of a false flag terror attack. And I'm going to sort of go through each of the four four parts with a little bit of a, a talking point here of what I would like you to talk about. So let's start with uh, the first part of of your piece, and which broke down the the 17 points of note in, an, in a false flag terror attack. Obviously, don't go into all 17, but maybe hit the ones you think are most important when discussing a false flag terror attack and what people should look for if there's a terror attack. You know, what are the signs they should look for that might that might be it might be uh, a clue that this is not what it appears to be. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, what a false flag attack is, um, to those listening who may not be aware of what the actual uh, term relates to, is it relates to terrorist acts that appear to have been carried out by a certain group or a certain country who are quickly named as being responsible for the attack, mm-hmm. um, when in fact it is an entirely different group who carries out the attack, blaming the first group. Um, a perfect example of this appears to be 9-11 itself. Um, at this point in time, 84% of Americans, based on the most recent poll that had been done, do not believe the government's own conspiracy theory of what happened on 9-11. And that's because it's complete nonsense. Anybody who has a little bit of common sense or just the general level of intelligence can understand that paper passports do not survive flaming infernos and land in the street unharmed and so forth. So to get into the uh, the major aspects of what to look for when you have a false flag possibility and you're looking at it to see if it matches uh, this uh, particular uh, definition is that the attack first and foremost uh, can be stated in terms of what is known as the Hegelian dialectic, mm-hmm. which is now more commonly referred to as 
problem, reaction, solution. The most recent uh, experience that we have had with this uh, terrorist attack, false flag scenarios in this country, brought about the USA Patriot Act. Yeah. Um, so the globalist agenda in some way will be progressed by the event itself. Um, suspects are named almost immediately after the event, but it's never enough in advance as to actually prevent the attack from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is that the news media is complicit in this uh, situation uh, because what they will do is replay videos of the attack on an endless basis, uh, which is designed to psychologically terrorize the viewers in terms of a, a psychological operation or PSYOP. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after the attack, you'll find that there are always going to be some sort of a freedom-destroying law uh, or bill that will be rushed through Congress, um, typically in the middle of the night or on a weekend or some other time of day um, that they will feel will not draw too much attention uh, to this by the media. Um, in terms of um, this also, we find that oftentimes the, you will find an announcement of terror drills or public safety drills have been uh, supposedly being uh, taken place at the time the real attack occurs. In the case of 9-11, again, there were four separate war games that were going on that, that particular day. Um, another thing that happens with false flag attacks is that eyewitness reports always vary greatly from the establishment version of the event that takes place. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, in the case of the London train bombings, um, there was uh, a couple of eyewitnesses who talked about um, a situation being where the bomb was actually inside the train instead of underneath the train. And you'll find that um, in the case of the Oklahoma City bombing, for instance, um, the early news reports after Oklahoma City were talking about there being nuclear bombs in the building and that there were further bombs that needed to be removed, and by the time we hit the 6 o'clock news at that uh, particular day, all of that was sanitized from the day's event, so to speak. So these are some of the typical things that you will find. Um, another interesting thing that always seems to occur is that surveillance cameras that are in the immediate area of where the attack takes place are either found to be mysteriously turned off, broken, or simply turned away from the action, so to speak. 
Um, if anyone notices this and anyone makes comments about this in public, this is blamed on somebody pulling a prank or somebody damaging the equipment. And gee, it's a shame, you know, that they damaged this equipment because if they wouldn't have, we would have caught the perpetrators, you know. Yeah. And yeah. all this stuff. So we need more cameras. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then the last thing that I want to mention, and this is interesting as well, is that as soon as possible after the attack, the entire site is locked down. There is no outside investigators. There are no outside verification. There is no truthful investigation that occurs and all physical evidence is destroyed as soon as possible. And going back to 9-11, we find that perfectly good evidentiary materials, such as the beams, the steel beams that were holding up the, the towers, were shipped off to China, and no one was allowed to actually investigate or test scientifically the evidence before it was destroyed. And as I said, there's just tons of points also in there that, that people should check out on controversypapers.net. Just one last thing that I'll say about the um, false flag report um, with the four parts mm -hmm. is that um, uh, we find that um, investigation or um, some sort of like a commission will be appointed um, sometimes immediately after the attack, um, like in, in the case of uh, Pearl Harbor, for instance, which we know for a fact was a false flag attack, um, that commission investigation was begun nine days after the attack itself. In the case of 9-11, it took them 441 days before a commission was appointed. In the JFK assassination, it took only a week for that to happen, as it did with the Challenger uh, shuttle disaster. Um, but in the case of 9-11, 441 days. And this makes the government look very bad. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why many people are pointing their fingers at the government directly me being one of them. Uh, you may note that these false flag terror attacks, especially in the last uh, 20 years or so, have been used as a means for the global agenda. Let's talk a little bit about the global agenda, because uh, obviously that's the big end game, I think, for the powers that be, if you will. The global agenda is uh, something that uh, is uh, actually uh, a very interesting thing to look at, because um, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to um, implant into the minds of the, the, po the population um, acceptance of these things. And in the case of what this agenda is, is they want uh, a world bank, for instance, with a, a single currency, which it will be cashless, it will be uh, at first, uh, a credit card type of a uh, process, and then later, 
it will be moved over to the microchip uh, implanted in individuals. Um, the other thing that they want to do is they want to uh, implant everybody in the country with, um, or I'm sorry, in the world with these microchips. They want a total surveillance, prison-based society, which is what America is at this point, uh, and turning into very quickly. You find uh, that they also desire a privatization of government military programs with the same handful of companies getting the contracts over and over again, merging the government with the military-industrial complex. They also would like to depopulate the world. And we found people like CNN founder Ted Turner saying that an ideal population for the world would be three to five hundred million people, as he stated in an interview with Audubon magazine. Uh, a single world currency and a world banking system, which is going to be based on the Federal Reserve uh, model. Um, we will also have destruction of individual national sovereignty and a world community will be constructed uh, which will move the, the thought process of the individual from being a citizen of America to being a citizen of the world. Yeah. Um, we, they also desire a world court, which would be a tribunal-based system where it will be uh, closed off, just like the military tribunals are now, where it's not allowing uh, a realistic or a legitimate defense uh, from occurring. It will... Uh, force people into secret testimony and other uh, horrible aspects of things that we're seeing coming out of the military right now. Yeah. They also want to have a fascist-based military rule, which would be similar to like a United Nations uh, type of army. Um, and the reason that they need to do that, for instance, is an American uh, service uh, individual, an Army or a Marine member, is not going to want to shoot an American. Yeah. But if they bring in somebody from another country to do that, they will have a much easier time in taking out that dissident, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we talked about the microchip population, and the ultimate uh, realization of this is not just going to be a microchip in your arm, but they want actual brain implants. So they will actually be able to control your thoughts and how all of your body's systems uh, can react and be manipulated by the frequencies that are being sent to and from these chips. Oh, boy. Um, they also would like uh, a, a global religion, uh, which would be based on Luciferian 
uh, doctrine and principles, and also um, the very last aspect of this is they are also shooting for mental health screening of all citizens, beginning with children through public schools, which would be undertaken uh, through the process of mind control programming for those who resist the new world order. Sounds pretty dark, Kent. Sounds pretty dark. Yeah, it's, um, you know, something, that, and, and again, Tim, these are the reasons why I put this uh, website together, um, because this is so negative uh, that this has to be advertised and, and passed uh, to the people so that they do understand what's going on so that we can have a chance to stop all this. Yeah. Talk about this Luciferian uh, influence because it's obviously it's come up a lot in, in uh, the Illuminati and, and at the top of the pyramid a lot of people seem to think that those people who really pull the strings are very dark and have a very dark side to them and there's a lot of this Luciferian aspect that's discussed not overtly as much as you'd think, and, and sort of uh, as, a, as a backdrop, a lot of comes up. So let's talk about that Luciferian aspect to uh, the Illuminati. In terms of this, um, this is only shared with people uh, once they reach a certain level in the hierarchy. Um, for instance, in Freemasonry, uh, we don't see the Luciferian principles start coming out until you reach the higher degrees, uh, which are way above the what are called the Blue Lodge degrees of um, the first three of the uh, 33 that are publicly known about. And then there are many, many more uh, on top of that that are not known to the public. And so once you start getting into these higher degrees, um, like the, the 30th, the 31st, and the 32nd degrees of um, the Scottish Rite, for instance, in Freemasonry, then you start to understand that the true um, uh, force behind the power, so to speak, is Lucifer. And they believe Lucifer to be um, the good uh, aspect who had been subverted by a uh, an evil uh, god, and they actually refer to like God and Jesus Christ as being negative forces, and Lucifer being uh, an angel of um, that must be revered, and and so forth, and. Um, in terms of this, um, you see this in the mass media all over the place. Um, uh, one of the other reports that I had written about the occult and Kabbalistic symbolism in rock music, and you find this in um, the way bands uh, record and uh, present their material on albums and CDs mm -hmm. and how the bands dress up and what how they do their performances in concert. So there's a big connection between bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Kiss, 
uh, Led Zeppelin, The Grateful Dead, for instance. Yeah. Um, between those bands and occult principles, um, for instance, it was uh, John Lennon who made sure that Aleister Crowley was put onto the cover of Sgt. Pepper uh, of that album. And um, he had been the person in the Beatles who was actually studying magic um, and the magical principles um, and the doctrines put forth by Aleister Crowley. Um, George Harrison is typically referred to as the religious beetle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he followed Eastern philosophy, and um, John Lennon uh, was dealing with um, Crowley magic and other aspects of that Luciferian uh, connection. Um, so in terms of that, it's very interesting to look at these things. Um, but it's a very negative uh, type of thing over the long haul because it does have a high price uh, in terms of how it affects um, people emotionally. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Ben All of America Audio. Big, big thanks to Kent Daniel Benkowski for coming on the show. He'll be back, of course, next week with part two of two. I'll preview that in a little bit. You can find out more information on Kent Daniel Bentkowski at controversypapers.blogspot.com, K-E-N-T-R-O-V-E-R-S-Y-P-A-P-E-R-S.blogspot.com. Check it out for tons of fascinating conspiracy-related material. Moving right along now, it's time for Banal of America Audio listener feedback, and this week we're going to break outside the box a little bit and respond to a post on the BOA Audio thread at Imaginative Worlds. I am a frequent poster there, and we have a thread at IW devoted to BOA Audio Season 2. And there's a lot of questions and comments that come in from the IW members who listen to BOA Audio. And we have a comment here from one of the members that I wanted to single out and discuss here in listener feedback. The Imaginative Worlds member is Topper. And here's what Topper has to say. I listened to the first half of Dr. Sala's interview. Tim, you need to relax and enjoy yourself. The average listener can hear your concentration over the airwaves. I heard or noticed that it took 45 minutes before you relaxed conducting this interview. One suggestion I have that might help, ask your guest what got them interested in the topic. What life-altering experience led them into the vast pit of paranormal research? That post is from Topper at Imaginative Worlds in the BOA Audio Season 2 thread. Thank you for taking the time to post in the thread, Topper. Thank you for the comments. There's actually more than meets the eye regarding what you may have noticed as my concentration that was emanating over the airwaves. During the Dr. Sala interview, his voice came across very quiet, and in fact, we had to actually increase the volume on the interview where Dr. Sala was talking because he was so quiet. We actually switched phones numerous times during the interview to try and get something louder coming from Dr. Sala, but it never seemed to take. And I think what you heard at the beginning of the interview was me trying to figure out how best to deal with this situation where I was worried that he wasn't going to come through clearly on the interview. He was going to come in too quiet. 
So in my mind, I'm, I'm going over the questions, of course, and what I'm going to talk to him about in the interview and what we're going to talk about next following what he's talking about. But also, I'm worrying about the sound quality of the interview. Unlike some of these other radio programs, I do not have an underling or even a helper here to manage the sound elements of the program. I have to do all that during the interview, and you only get one shot at these sort of things. I've had a couple of occasions where things have gone wrong, and we've retaped small portions of interviews, but you don't want to have to stop the interview halfway through and say, wait a minute, you're not coming through clearly enough. So in essence, really, that was what you heard during the interview, and we've made adjustments to the process, and hopefully that won't happen again. Regarding the second point about asking the guest what got them interested in the topic, we almost always do that for every interview, but since we had Dr. Sala on BOA Audio twice already and covered his bio and background, I didn't ask him this time around, and in retrospect, I really probably should have because there's a lot of people who haven't heard that interview and missed out on the bio background portion of a Dr. Sala interview, so we'll make it a policy from here on out to do the bio background even if the guest has come back a second time around for the new listeners who didn't hear it on the original interview. So there you go, smashing the fourth wall a little bit here at BOA Audio. As the show grows and evolves and gets bigger, and maybe we can bring in some people to give me a hand here with the technical aspects of the show, you'll hear less of me being concerned with that, and I can focus more on the actual hosting part of the show. But for now, it's a ragtag operation. Ride along with us. Don't worry. Things are only going to keep improving here at Vanilla America Audio. And thank you so much for listening, Topper, and thank you for posting in the BOA Audio Season 2 thread at imaginativeworlds.com. If you'd like to be a part of Banal of America Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to do it. Actually, there's numerous ways to do it, as I just noted here from the listener feedback, but here are the two main ways to do it. Either go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen, that will bring you to the contact page at BOA. Or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Those are the two main ways to reach us for Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Also, you can go to the message board, theusofe.com. That's the official BOA message board. Let me spell the URL, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. That's the BOA message board. You can go there. There's a section there for BOA Audio with individual threads and discussions on each episode and a thread for listener feedback. You can always go there and post your question or comment or go to imaginativeworlds.com where we have our own BOA section now and you can pop in there and discuss the show with me there if you want. So a myriad of ways for you to be a part of the All of America Audio listener feedback. Now all you have to do is come up with a question, a comment, a suggestion, a guest suggestion, or whatever and send it in to me, and your correspondence will be on the road to Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Let's do it to it on the thanks. Big, big thanks to Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna of BanalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. you got to check out the BOA staff columns at BanalofAmerica.com. Just fantastic stuff. Tina Senna's material has been getting a ton of critical acclaim. Chiron's movie reviews are really catching on like wildfire. And we've been talking about the quickly rising Leslie and R. Lee 
both of whom are now a part of UFO Magazine as well. The BitAllOfAmerica.com staff is going places, and you can read a wealth of their material at BOA. If you're only listening to Banal of America audio, you're only getting half the story. Read the columns at BanalofAmerica.com for even more underground esoterica. BanalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, there's a simple way to do it. You go to BanalofAmerica.com, you click the PayPal button, and you make a donation via PayPal. No donation is too small. All donations go towards offsetting the cost of the program and helps keep the show up and running and available to all our great listeners worldwide. So if you can make a donation, please do. It would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, Kent Daniel Bentkowski, Part 2 of 2. In this concluding installment, we're going to have an extended discussion on esoteric messages found in popular films like A Bug's Life, Breakfast Club, They Live, and many others. We're going to get KDB's take on esoteric television shows of note, the UFO phenomenon, and an interesting inside story on Timothy McVeigh. Of course, the requisite tons and tons more. It's a marriage of esoterica and pop culture in our concluding installment of our interview with Kent Daniel Bentkowski of the Controversy Papers. On that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Thank you very much for listening, folks. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off.